Listen to the word of God. Now a large crowd was traveling with him, meaning traveling with Jesus. And he turned to them and said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, thank you that we have an opportunity to come into your presence and through your word proclaimed, may we encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's one of those good passages you just skip. <laughs> I don't remember ever hearing a sermon preached on this passage growing up, so I'll try to avoid it the best I can. Yeah. That was a joke. <laughs> I, it was good being on vacation, and uh, I got to spend a week in, on an island, Block Island in Rhode Island. It was beautiful. It was great. And then... Um, last week was the anniversary of my father's death, so I wanted to do something with my mom, so I took her uh, to what was one of their favorite places, um, Blackwater Falls up in the Allegheny Highlands near Canaan Valley. It's, it's as part of the Appalachians. It kind of has the climate of Canada. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place, and that was a very special place for them. And so... We're, we're climbing the Allegheny Highlands. Now, it's much easier to do now. You used to have to, uh, as a kid, I used to dread the trip because it just made us all sick because it was just going around and around. But now they just have the mountain, straight up the mountain. And you can see uh, the results of strip mining, which is, this was such a beautiful area, but there's parts of it have been ripped apart. You also see the new wind turbines, which are replacing coal. So it's an interesting kind of, it's really changed since I was a kid. But climbing up, right before we got uh, to where we were going, there was a huge flagpole. Okay. They must have, yeah, they must have poured a ton of concrete to secure this huge flagpole up on a huge cliff. And flying was a Confederate flag. Okay. Now, I don't know if you know your West Virginia history or not. But the most absurd thing in the world is to fly a Confederate flag in West Virginia because West Virginia exists because it broke away from Virginia during the Civil War. Now, first of all, it wasn't even a Confederate flag. Because people get the Confederate flag wrong. It actually was the, it's what we call the Confederate flag, but it actually was the Navy flag and or the uh, battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. So even... All these Confederate flags don't get the history right. But that really wasn't about history. <laughs> um, it's part of the revisionist history, right? Uh, and there's a lot of revisionist history around the Confederacy. Okay? The idea of the lost cause that 
the Civil War wasn't really fought about slavery, but it was fought because of the preserve the Southern way of life or it was to fight the Northern War of Aggression. Those are all ideas that came into existence after the Civil War okay? and became into particular prominence during World War I and also during the Civil Rights Movement. Matter of fact, most of those Confederate statues that people complained about went up not in the 1870s, but in the 1950s, right? As, and it was not about remembering Confederates. Now, we shouldn't just pick on the South. We all engage in revisionist history. Our country certainly does that, uh, and we have a long history of it. Other countries do it as well. I remember I was overseas somewhere when the, uh, right after the first Gulf War started, and I was having this conversation with this British person, and he goes, you Yanks sure mess up the Middle East. And if you know, I said, your, your country drew the map that causes all these problems, right? <laughs> so before you blame it on us, look at your, yourselves. Um, you know, we do it as people, too. I mean, that's part of, of one of the struggles, right? We have a tendency to retell our story uh, where we are the ones that usually are in the right, you know, particularly um, if there's conflict, whether it be at work, or let's say if you've ever listened to people give witness of what happened in an accident, okay? Uh, how many times have you, have you heard someone say, boy, it was my fault. I was not paying attention. Right. So that's what makes the Hebrew scriptures so unique because they don't whitewash their history. Today's passage, I wish we had time to read chapter 29 and all of the first part of chapter 30 of Deuteronomy because it's pretty amazing. Now, the context that is placed in the, in the scripture here is that this is a renewal ceremony at Midian. Moses is about to die. Okay. And so he's brought everybody back together, and they've gone through all the things they've gone through through the wilderness. And Moses has given them one last speech. You know, whether it's God or Moses talking, they kind of go interchangeably because Moses is the mouthpiece of God. And what's fascinating about this passage, um, and uh, it actually was written much later, is that Moses starts out and says something very similar to our text that, uh, that we heard earlier. Uh, that, you know, if you obey, things will go well. If you disobey, things will go badly. But then Moses goes in and says, probably some of you are already thinking about disobeying, and when you disobey, everything's going to go wrong, and future generations will lose the land, but they'll get it back. In other words, Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is written after the fact. It's written actually in the exile when they had already lost the land, when they had already lost their king, when the temple was already destroyed. They're sitting in Babylon, putting together the whole uh, tradition, which most of it becomes most of the Bible at that point, of the Old Testament, and they're reflecting on how in the world did we lose everything. And at the heart of the message in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, is that God gave them two ways. Pretty simple. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of words there, but it's basically, you have two options. You can follow me, not worship other idols, be good to each other, which all those things come together, right? There's one, when we don't worship the true God, we have a tendency to look at other people 
in a wrong way. Now, there are people who don't believe in God who are often better than people who do believe in God. But a false idea about God almost inevitably leads to a false idea about people. And so the history of Israel is them treating each other badly. Of people who once were slaves taking on slaves themselves and treating this foreigner and the stranger in an oppressive way. Forgetting about the orphan and the homeless, treating the poor, taking advantage of them. That was because, according to the prophets, because they didn't take God seriously. So the option that is given here is if you follow God and recognize God as God, then you will live and you will prosper. If you don't, then you won't. Okay. Now, it's kind of simplistic. I get that. And the book of Job is a critique against this philosophy, if you would. Okay. So even within the Hebrew scriptures, there is tension. But this idea of the two ways, which you can find in uh, early Christianity, you can find a version of it in different forms of Buddhism. You can find it in almost every major ethical system, the idea there's a way of life and there's a way of death. And the Jewish version of it, which becomes the Christian version of it, is that you either follow God or you don't. I'm doing a wedding later on today. And so when it comes to the point when I ask them to make their vows, I don't go, okay, do you say I do or maybe? Right? It's not a multiple choice. You have A, B, or C. Uh, you know, I've seen people in their eyes thinking maybe before they said I do. Okay, <laughs> I've seen some fear, and fear is okay. Uh, but I've never done a wedding. I've done probably I've done hundreds of weddings. I've never gotten to the point where the vows where someone goes, you know, I need a little more time. <laughs> Can we go have cocktail hour? You know, and uh, get the appetizers out of the way, and then come back to me. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's either I do or you better run as quickly as possible for the car. Right? Right? At that point, you've already made that decision. Right? Matter of fact, it was interesting, the couple I'm marrying today, which I've known her since she was just a child, and him since he was in high school, they actually broke up. They, they were apart for four years. They were like high school sweethearts. They broke up. And what's fascinating is they came back together and chose to say yes to each other. It's a pretty powerful story. And in many ways, that isn't that the human story, right? <laughs> we always are saying yes to God and then kind of drifting away. And so this, this, this two ways is not saying that we're always getting it right. I mean, the whole Bible, both the Old and New Testament, is full of ways that you have to make right for what you've done wrong. Okay? When God gives us a command, he always gives us an opportunity to... Repent from our failure of the plan. And that's what's powerful about the story of Deuteronomy. And the story of Deuteronomy goes on through Judges and Joshes and First and Second Samuel, First and Second King. The same writer or writers wrote the whole thing. And it's a story of people not living up to their vows, bad things happening, but God always welcoming them back, always offering forgiveness. So this two ways is not an idea of perfection. But it's, it's an orientation. You know, one of the things that happens in the Jewish tradition is this external idea of God's command becomes something that's internal. 
We've all seen the angel, the two angels, you know, the angel and the demon on people's shoulders. That actually comes from Judaism. And the idea that there are two spirits within every human being. Uh, the Yatzer Hatov and the Yatzer Hara. Okay. There's an inclination to do good and there's an inclination to live selfishly. And those two forces are always at work in the soul. Okay. And the goal, the goal is to not let the living selfishly, the survival instinct, overcome the call to do good for God and for our neighbors. The Father Brown, I don't know if you've ever watched the Father Brown Mysteries or not, but um, they were actually written by G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a guy who was both uh, a journalist, he started out his life as an atheist, um, converted, and was a really an interesting a writer, an interesting apologist. And Father Brown is one of, uh, Carrie does the Father Brown Mysteries as well as all kinds of different writings. And Father Brown said this once in one of the books. No man is really any good till he knows how bad he is. Or might be. Till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all his snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. Till he gets rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about low types and deficient skills. Till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees. Till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and keep him safe and sane under his own hat. Until you capture the criminal under your own hat, can you begin to actually really look at the world. The failure to recognize the criminal under one's own hat is why projection and displacement are so damaging to our souls and our relationships. <laughs> when we can't see what's wrong about us, when we can't see how we've failed to take the right way, and we tend to project that on other people, okay, or displace their anger, our anger on other people, that's so harmful. Okay, It's not only bad for ourselves, but it's bad for the people around us. That's also why racism and all its corollaries have horrific consequences in time, but have even greater consequences when it comes to eternity. The thing that makes racism so dangerous for one's soul is that it's so close to the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said is the unforgivable sin. And what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It's when you call evil good. They were accusing Jesus of being a demon. And he says, you're, you're getting pretty close here. Right? When you call good and e good evil and evil good, then you don't know what's right or wrong. Isn't some of the most horrific chapters of human history is when people called evil acts good and the good evil or even the illegal? And if God is somehow evoked in this whole project of racism and hate, then it probably is almost unforgivable because you think you're doing God's work when you're treating people in hateful and denigrating ways. That's the way of death. And that's part of what's behind the hard sayings of Jesus today. Okay, for instance, all right? You know, you never hear this passage, you know, and back to family, you know, family night at church, and Jesus says, unless you hate your family. 
Okay? Now, what does he mean by that? Because Jesus obviously still followed the commandments to honor your father and mother. But what does he mean by hating your family? Well, you know, I've seen this sign. Matter of fact, I was at a party yesterday and uh, it has a beautiful outside grill. And above the grill says, family is everything. Right? I, I mean, we've all probably heard that. Now, you don't have to be around me too much to realize how important my family is to me. How, 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 how much I love them and how much we love each other. But family is not everything. If you make your family a god, then that only hurts them, but it hurts you as well. I don't know how many people are disappointed and live with a lot of disappointment because their children turn out not to be very good gods. Okay, And I would just say right now, children are beautiful, but they're lousy gods. So there's a sense where, okay, that the very thing that God is warning us not to do, to make something else other than himself God, that is the way of death. And Jesus is saying, unless I'm the only thing that matters, then everything else is going to be out of sync. Okay. In other words, it's, it's a matter of ordering our loves. To love God first helps us to love others better. That's kind of a, that's an irony of it. But the principle is, I've said this before, the principle is when you're on the airplane, right? And it seems selfish to say, in case of a problem, put on your own air mask first, right? That seems selfish, right? Your first instinct is to save your children. But if, if you can't save yourself, then you're not going to be much use to anybody around you. That's the same way in order in our loves. To love God first helps us to literally learn what love is. Now, I've learned so much about what it means for God to love us as a father and as a grandfather. I've learned a lot about that, okay? But still, there's a sense where part of why I can love my children properly is because they're not my God's. Part of the reason why we can enjoy the good gifts that God has given us in this world is if we realize they're not an end unto themselves. I've done a lot of funerals. You can't take your stuff with you. There's not much room in that box, all right? I mean, I've seen people try stuff. (laughs) I remember I was doing one funeral, and someone came up to me and said, can I put this in the box? I go... Sure. <laughs> it's not going to help them much. Right? And so I think there's a sense here that Jesus is trying to say, listen, to choose me, to choose the way of life means don't be distracted by other things because you're going to treat them wrongly. And so that's why this idea of the way of life is the way of Christ. Um, I'm reading a book right now by Sister Helen Prigion. Uh, you're probably most familiar with her. She was the one who wrote the book Dead Man Walking. She's a Catholic nun who's an, who's an uh, activist against the death penalty. And that movie was based on her book. Okay, she's a fascinating character. She's uh, 80 years old now. Just a, such a colorful, full-of-life person. I heard her interviewed. And she has a new book out. 
But the movie was based on her first book, and, and it's, it's about the relationship that she has with a man on death row. And in the movie, Susan Sarandon plays her, and Sean Penn plays uh, the convict, Matthew. And towards the middle of the movie, there's a, con- there's, a, there's a conversation. Now, Sister Helen is against the death penalty, but she also sees her job as to help this man and his soul. And she's become kind of a spiritual guide to them. So at one point, she's telling him, you know, you need to, you need to reckon with what you've done. And he and another person were um, accused of a, a double murder of a young couple. And the inmate, Sean Penn, says, I'm fine. I asked Jesus into my heart. And Sister Helen says, redemption isn't some kind of free admission ticket that you get because Jesus paid the price. You have to participate in your redemption. you got some work to do. In other words, he, he never, <laughs> he hadn't chosen the way of life. Matter of fact, his religious faith at that point was just part of his old denial, saying that he was a victim. The night before he's executed, he finally confesses to her that he did commit the crime. And he says this to her. I never had no real love myself. I never loved a woman or anybody else or myself. Just never could. Might figure I'd have to die to find love. And he goes, thank you for loving me, says the sister Helen. And she says, when you see my love, you see the face of Christ. See, this idea of the two ways <laughs> is not some sort of celestial grade school rules, okay? It's not God saying, don't run in the hall, okay? It's about choosing life. It's about choosing love. It's about letting life and love choose you. It's about not chasing lesser gods. It's about being able to receive the free gift of God's mercy and love. And when we receive it, it sets us free to change our eyes, to change our loves. To not look at people in the same way. To be free from the hate and prejudice and fear and anger that so rules our time. And often rules our own hearts. To choose life is for God's life to become part of us and for us to become part of that life. We're not perfect. We fall short. That's why we do a prayer of confession, because <laughs> we need it, right? But this meal we're about to celebrate is really about the celebration of God's gracious love for us. It is saying yes to the meal of Christ. It's saying yes to the love of Christ. And when we say yes to Christ, we're saying yes to ourselves and to the human race as well. That's the power of this meal. That's the power of the two ways. It's the way of life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Nicene Creed. It's printed on the internet.